0: Jesus remembers those who say, remember me. Jesus remembers those who turn to him, right? Like he always remembers those who turn to him in repentance. The reality of this story is like, if you hadn't heard any of the background, like if I hadn't given you any of the backstory last week and this week, if I hadn't given you any of the background about the crucifixion and you just heard these words in isolation, today you'll be with me in paradise, you would perhaps assume that Jesus' friend is being crucified next to him, that maybe a leader in the religious community is being crucified next to him. But the truth is that Jesus isn't responding to someone who has been behaving really well. He's not responding in the story to someone who's been doing a lot of good things. Jesus doesn't speak to someone who's a leader in the religious community. He doesn't say these words to someone who is highly esteemed socially. He says these words to a man who has lived a pretty terrible life, who was a criminal, and he tells him today, he tells him today. Jesus is saying this at the cross, that immediately after we die, we get to be with Jesus, and it's like, it's like coming home. It's like coming home, and it's far better than any good thing we could experience in this life. And so what's happening here in Luke 23 is that Jesus is looking at this criminal, and he is promising this criminal his forever presence. He is saying, like, today you'll be with me in paradise. Like, there will not be a moment where I am not with you from this moment on. Jesus is promising to never leave him as he promises us to never leave us nor forsake us. And as we are promised in the New Testament, you know, that, that, that nothing can separate us from the love of God. Like, like this is the promise to the criminal. Like, nothing is going to separate you from my love. I'm going to be with you now, and I'm going to be with you as you draw your last breath and as you go into this next life. And so I just tell you that because this criminal has these these questions of like, what's going to happen to me after I die? Questions we all have. And I want to tell you that we don't have to be fearful of going into death. We're in uh, week two of a teaching series uh, called uh, Famous Last Words. In this series, we are turning our attention towards Easter. We are focusing our attention on the crucifixion scene And on what Jesus is doing on the cross. Focusing our attention on his famous last words before he died. Now there are seven statements that Jesus gave from the cross. His final words of choice before he, as scripture tells us, drew his last breath and gave up his spirit and died. And so today what we are doing is we are looking at the second statement of Jesus from the cross. Where Jesus very famously looks uh, at the... uh, The the man who was being crucified next to him, the criminal, and he tells him, I tell you the truth. Today, you will be with me in paradise. Last Sunday, we introduced the uh, the first statement of Jesus from the cross where he tells, uh, he prays to the Father. He says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And today, we are on uh, statement number two. Really uh, excited to get into this together. So, uh, if you have your Bibles you want to follow along, it's in Luke 23. Uh, We'll have the scriptures on the screen as well. Now, how many of you. At some point in your life, uh, you have received words of caution from uh, parents, uh, grandparents, aunts and uncles, friends, about who you surround yourself with. Anybody? You ever had words of caution given to you? Maybe it's something like this. You know, watch who you keep company with or, you know, who you spend time around, like, determines who you become, or show me, show me who you're hanging around, and I'll show you, you know, your future. I'll show you what that ends up looking like. I remember when I was a youth pastor uh, years ago, this is probably about 15, 16 years ago, I remember uh, reading a book uh, and, and uh, coming across this quote by Jeannie Mayo, and uh, where she says, show me your friends, and I'll show you your future, and I remember uh, that, that being such a uh, um, you know, if you were to talk to any of those kids from that era of, of me being their youth pastor, they, they would all remember that because of how many, often I would say it to them, show me your friends and I'll show you your future. In other words, like, who you spend time around, right, who you uh, are with uh, is, is, is a picture of what your life will end up being. And so uh, perhaps you've even heard the language of the Bible. 1 Corinthians 15, 33 and 34 says, Do not be misled, bad company Uh, corrupts good character bad company corrupts good character that's verse 33 now here's what i think here's what i think about all this i think that all of these words of caution about who you hang out with and who you spend your time around i think they all have merit i think they are important and that we must certainly be mindful of who we surround ourselves with for sure and yet with all of these words of caution that we have heard throughout our life and that people tell us, we look at the crucifixion scene. And the crucifixion scene reminds us of the surprising ways of Jesus. Because Jesus didn't always live according to this advice, to you know, watch the company that you keep or be careful who your friends are because that's a picture of what your future is gonna look like. You see on the cross, Jesus dies in a way that is very consistent with how he was born. He dies in a way that's very consistent with how he lived because, you know, Jesus was born among people who were not considered to be all that important. He was born among people who had no level of social significance. Like, Like, this is true, right? He was born in a barn, in a stable. He was born... With the people at his his bedside who were the, the most unlikely, the least important people that you would have at the bedside of a king who had just been born. And so we see this in his birth, but also in his life. Jesus lived a life in relationship with people whom the world had overlooked. The proverbial outcasts, right? Those who lived on the peripheral of society. Jesus had a way... As you read the Gospels, you find Jesus had a way of, of touching people who were contagious. He had a way of eating with people who would have been considered corrupt. And I imagine that there were many people over the course of Jesus' life who tried to pull him aside and give him a little talk. I would imagine there were many people who tried to pull him aside to remind him of who he's hanging out with, but there were people who would have pulled him aside and said something like, hey, Jesus, don't forget that your friends are a picture of your future. And yet what we see in this story in Luke 23 is that in his birth and in his life and even in his death, Jesus is surrounded by questionable people. And we're reminded of this truth in the crucifixion scene, right, as Jesus is crucified between two thieves, two criminals says this in verse 32, uh, Luke 23. Two other men, both criminals, were also let out with him to be executed. And when they came to the place called the Skull, there they crucified him along with the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. Theologian Karl Barth says this. He says, strangely enough, there are many paintings of Jesus' crucifixion, where the two criminals are not pictured, but the two thieves on the uh, on the right and on the left must not be left out in any painting or representation where they are absent, and important even an essential element is missing and I think that's an this is an interesting thought because so often you know we, we see the crucifixion depicted in a painting or in a, in, in a, uh, uh, you know in in some way and, and it's, it's it's one cross it's you know um, how we wear it around our neck, right? And and that is the the, the main thing, right? The cross of Jesus. But what we can't forget is that it's, it's, it's not just one cross here. In fact, if you're taking notes, I would say that the crucifixion story is not a story of one cross, it's a story of three crosses. And that you can't fully understand the crucifixion, you can't fully understand Jesus and who he is without considering the two men who were crucified next to him. One on his right and the other on his left. As the three men are being crucified together, and maybe you're familiar with this story, but as they're being crucified together, a conversation begins to ensue. And I don't know how the conversation was started or how it was even possible in the midst of all the pain that they were experiencing, but somehow while they were in agonizing pain, little bits of conversation was taking place between the three men being crucified at the same time. Luke 23 tells us that one of the thieves begins to speak to Jesus in a way that sounds like he's insulting him. In fact, in verse 39, it says, one of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Christ? Aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and us. Save yourself and us. Now, what's striking to me about this question and the demand from this thief for Jesus to save himself and them is that it sounds really familiar to me. In fact, I hear this criminal talking to Jesus like this and it's, it's like, man, I think I've heard this somewhere else. This isn't the first time that Jesus has been tempted to show his power. When Jesus is on the cross, this isn't the first time he's been tempted to sort of override the natural circumstances that are happening to him and to prove that he is God, tempted to be the king who overpowers others. And instead, instead of, of, of going the way that God would have him go, instead of, of, of going the way of suffering and self-giving love, Jesus at many points is tempted to take the easy way out. And so when I hear the words, save yourself, it reminds me of the words of Satan. Satan. It reminds me of the ways that Satan has tempted Jesus throughout his life. I think about Jesus in the wilderness for 40 days. Immediately after the Father has spoken a word of blessing to him at his baptism. Look at this in in, in Luke chapter 3. This is this is at Jesus' baptism. It says that when, or I'm sorry, in Luke chapter 3, 21 and 23, it says, when all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. And as he was praying heaven was opened and the holy spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove okay i taught this a couple weeks ago in our hearing god class on wednesday nights that the holy spirit is not a dove but in this story he descended like a dove okay it's important it says a voice came from heaven this is the voice of the father came from heaven you are my son whom i love with you i am well pleased it says, now Jesus himself was about 30 years old when he began his ministry. And so we have in this story this powerful moment of Jesus' baptism. We have the Father declaring who Jesus is, the heavens opening, and the Father speaking over Jesus who he is. He's declaring what he thinks about Jesus. He says, you are my son whom I love, and with you I am well pleased. Well, from, from, from that powerful moment, Jesus He's carried by the Holy Spirit into the desert where he faces Satan after 40 days of, of fasting. Luke 4, uh, verse one says Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit. So now he is full of the Holy Spirit because he was baptized in the Holy Spirit at his water baptism. Full of the Holy Spirit, he returns from the Jordan where he, where he was baptized, right, and led by the Spirit into the desert where for, for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days and at the end of them, he was hungry. At The end of them, he was hungry and the devil, Satan comes to him and he says, if you are the son of God, tell this stone to become bread. So here, here, you see what's going on here in Luke chapter three at his baptism, the father declares who Jesus is, tells him what he thinks about him, declares his identity over him that he is his son whom he loves and whom he is well pleased and the very first Uh, thing that Jesus does following that baptism is he goes into the wilderness and is tempted by Satan where Satan comes to him and starts to insert doubt about what God had said about him and he says if you're the son of God well he was just he was just affirmed by the father that he is the son of God and Satan right here is is uh is trying to insert doubt he's doing the very same thing to Jesus here in the wilderness like he did to uh Eve in the garden He's being baited to prove his power, to prove that he really is God. It says in verse 9 that the devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand at the highest point of the temple. And he said, Again, if you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here. And we know that each time that Jesus is tempted here in this incredible story that he responds with scripture that he has hidden in his heart. He knows the truth and he knows when the truth is being twisted and he responds with truth. Time and time again, Jesus is tempted by the devil to take the easy way out and not uh, to go the way of suffering love. The other thing about this story that, that, that you may not realize is, is uh, you know, when Jesus came to this earth he came on a mission, right? He came on a mission of love. He came on a mission to, to, uh, to save us, like, right, from sin. But he also came primarily, really, to destroy the works of the devil. Like, you think of all the works of the devil throughout the earth that had happened all, all along the way, all the destruction, right? Everything that had, been, uh, had changed from uh, God's design at creation. And so Jesus is here, and he's, he's coming to kind of take back authority over what has been lost, we learn in the Garden of Eden that Adam was given authority over, over creation, right? To have, to have dominion, to rule and to have dominion over creation. And, and that Satan comes, tempts them, right? And that the authority that was given to Adam has been now transferred over to Satan. And so in, in, in the wilderness, what's going on here, uh, in, in another, there's three, three vignettes. The second one, is, it, Satan offers Jesus all the, all the power of all the kingdoms, all authority over all the kingdoms, right? So, so what's going on here, like Jesus doesn't question whether or not Satan actually has the power to do it. He doesn't, he doesn't question whether he really has that authority. Like like Jesus knows he has the authority because he knows the authority was given to him in the garden, right? And so Jesus isn't questioning that. He knows it. And right there in that moment, he is tempted by Satan to take the easy way out. He's tempted to to to, to kind of... Uh, circumvent the process and accomplish what he came here to do by taking back authority and taking back power, and he knows that Satan is the one who has the ability to give it to him. See, Jesus, time and time and time again, is tempted to take the easy way out. Satan is is, is often tempting him to show his power, to to kind of power up and prove that he's got, to not go, go the way of the cross. In fact, we see this again in Matthew 16, Very, very, very famous story. In fact, many of you would know this verse by heart. It says, from that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. So there came a point in Jesus' ministry, right? Most of his ministry in the early days was done around the Sea of Galilee and other parts of Israel. There came a point where Jesus Set his eyes on Jerusalem and said, I must go to Jerusalem, right? He knew what had to happen to him. Peter takes Jesus aside to have a pep talk. Kind of like I mentioned earlier, right? I imagine there's other people who have done this with Jesus to say, hey, like, who are you surrounding yourself with? What are you doing? Peter took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him. Can you imagine? imagine rebuking the son of god peter says never lord this shall never happen to you so what is he saying never he's saying he's saying you shall never be killed and you shall never on the third day be raised back to life that shall never happen to you jesus in verse 23 turned and said to peter get behind me satan you are a stumbling block to me you do not have in mind the things of god but the things of men Now what's interesting about this story here is that Jesus doesn't tell Peter to get behind him, he tells Satan to get behind him. See, there is a voice that Jesus has heard at many times throughout his life that has offered him an easier way out, that has tempted him to not go the way of the cross and the way of self-sacrificing love. And we see it again on the cross. We see it again on the cross as Jesus is being crucified. Satan comes at him once again through this first criminal to try to get him to take the easy way out. You see, at the end of Luke 4, when you, when you read that whole, that whole section on Jesus in the wilderness, Jesus withstands his temptation. He, he withstands the temptation from the devil. And the Bible says that, it doesn't say that like, like the devil's just like, okay, I'm done now. It says that he, he went away to, to, to look or to wait for a more opportune time. In fact, and, and so, so what he's doing here is he's, he's like, all right, so you got me this time, but I'm gonna look for another moment. I'm gonna look for a time when you're more weak. I'm gonna look for a time when, when there's, 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 there's like a, a crack that I can, I can expose and I can get in there. He's gonna go look for a more opportune time. Well, the cross was that for Jesus. It was the most opportune time. Think about how weak and how vulnerable Jesus must have been in that moment. And so this thief... Echoing the words of Satan, he speaks to Jesus and says, aren't you the Christ? Right, he's inserting that doubt. Aren't you the Christ? I thought you were the Christ. Aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and us. But Jesus refuses to give in to the temptation. He refuses to call on the angels of heaven to deliver him. He refuses to prove his power in that moment. If you're taking notes today, look at this with me. From the beginning to end. Jesus' life was not marked by self-preservation, but by self-giving love from beginning to end. Reminds me a lot of 9-11. If you were alive during that time, it's interesting you have to say that now, right? Like, if you were alive during that time, uh, you know exactly where you were when you heard about it or when you saw the pictures. I remember being a senior in high school. I remember uh, our family had just moved from uh, or we, were, we had just packed up a, a moving truck uh, from Arizona where I grew up and we were on our way to Des Moines. So we were on the road. And we start hearing some news come in. We pull over at a gas station and people are huddled around a TV and there's images like, like, like of, of, of the towers and all of that. And you know, if you remember that moment well, wow, you remember pictures of people you know, running away from the carnage, running away from the horror you remember seeing people kind of run out of these buildings and get as far away as possible. It's Some of the most horrifying footage like you, like, like of, of it is seeing people like, like freaked out and running as fast as they can. And then you also see images and pictures and video of emergency personnel who are running towards it, right? So you have everyone running from the towers trying to preserve their lives, but then through an act of courage, and I would say an act of calling, really, the emergency personnel are running towards the towers, not from it. You see, this is like an example of Jesus' love because Jesus' love for us goes beyond any desire to save himself. Any desire to save himself. He goes into the fires of sin and death on our behalf. When we see Jesus crucified between two criminals, there is there is um, so much of the gospel here. So much of God's grace here in this story. Jesus dying in between two thieves, it reminds us of like two really important things that I want to pull out of this story and I want you to kind of carry with you throughout the week. Number one is that Jesus is always near the bottom. Jesus is always near the bottom. Look at these thieves, these robbers, these criminals. They are considered the worst of human society. And this is a good reminder to us that Jesus is, consistently found himself amongst the worst. Jesus consistently finds himself among the lowest. He's always in their company. If you wanna find out where Jesus is, just look to the lowest of society and you will find him there. You know, before cell phones were widespread, again, dating myself, but there's a lot of you, so I I feel like uh, I'm in good company here today. Before uh, cell phones were widespread, your family had to assume where you were, right? Before you could be like tracked down by GPS or Life 360 apps or Find My Family or whatever it is, like like your family had to assume that you were where you said you were going to be, right? And so when I was growing up, my parents, when they didn't know where I was, they had to assume that I was where I usually was. They needed to get me. They needed to find me. I was out. They, 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 they would have to, to start looking for me at the places I usually hung out. They would have to look for me either at my friends or on the basketball court or someplace I usually hung out at. And so how, how would they find me? They'd go to those places, right? Like, where's Jordan at? We don't know where he's at. Like, like they'd tell my brother, go down to the basketball court and see if he's down there. Or go over to you know, so-and-so's house. Or call, call so-and-so's parents and let's see see if he's down there. When Mary and Joseph couldn't find Jesus, they would look for him in the places he usually was. And he was either in the temple, right? Or or he was with the lowest of the lowest in society. And so where do you find Jesus? You, you go to where he usually is. It's really simple. He's always near the bottom. He's always with those that the world overlooks. He's always with those that we tend to avoid. And if you are here this morning, and I don't know your story, I don't know your journey, I don't know the ups and downs, I don't know everything you've lived through, but if you've ever felt like you're at the bottom, the good news is that Jesus is next to you. Look at this thought with me on the screen. We often socially program to avoid the lowest in society, but Jesus voluntarily becomes a part of the lowest in society. That's who he is. In fact, Isaiah prophesies about this in Isaiah 53, verse 12. He says, because he poured out his life unto death, he was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. So you notice that that Jesus wasn't numbered with the members of the religious establishment. You notice that Jesus wasn't numbered with those who were politically connected. That Jesus wasn't numbered with the civic leaders and the business leaders. He was numbered among the transgressors. The worst of the worst, the lowest of the lowest. Jesus is always near the bottom. He's always near the bottom. Jesus is being crucified in this story between these two thieves, one who sounds like Satan (laughs) and the other who couldn't sound any more different. And what happens in this story is that the first criminal who sounds an awful lot like Satan, he starts to get rebuked by the other criminal on the other side of Jesus. In verse 40, it says, but the other criminal rebuked him. He said, don't you fear God? Since you're under the same sentence, we're being punished justly for we're getting what our deeds deserve, but this man has done nothing wrong. And then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. The second thief is very, very, very interested As I think you would be too if you were being crucified on a cross, waiting to die. He's very, very interested in what is going to happen to him after he dies. I think it's a thought that that, that all of us are probably interested in. It's a thought, it's a question that we try to avoid as best as possible. In fact, most of us live our lives in ways to avoid ever having to come face to face with those kinds of questions. We live our lives as if we are going to be the first people in all of human history to avoid this inevitable end or this inevitable reality. Well, this second thief, like, he knows what's about to happen. He knows he's got moments left. He's very, very interested in what is going to happen to him. And he tells Jesus, he says, would you just remember me when you come into your kingdom? Which leads us to one of the most incredible statements Jesus ever makes One of the most incredible statements that we have in the entire New Testament, one of Jesus' famous last words in verse 43, it says, Jesus answered him, I tell you the truth, today you will be with me in paradise. Today you will be with me. Today. Meaning that very day. Like as soon as he breathed his last breath. Today. And so the second thing I pull out of this story, the first was, That Jesus is always near the bottom. And the second one is that Jesus remembers those who say, remember me. Jesus remembers those who say, remember me. Jesus remembers those who turn to him, right? Like he always remembers those who turn to him in repentance. The reality of this story is like if you hadn't heard any of the background, like if I hadn't given you any of the backstory last week and this week, If I hadn't given you any of the background about the crucifixion and you just heard these words in isolation, today you'll be with me in paradise, you would perhaps assume that Jesus' friend is being crucified next to him. That maybe a leader in the religious community is being crucified next to him. But the truth is that Jesus isn't responding to someone who's been behaving really well. He's not responding in the story to someone who's been doing a lot of good things. Jesus doesn't speak to someone who's a leader in the religious community. He doesn't say these words to someone who is highly esteemed socially. He says these words to a man who has lived a pretty terrible life, who was a criminal, and he tells him today. He tells him today. Today. Not at some point. Not at some point down the road, but today. You notice that Jesus doesn't mention two two um, kind of kind of theological ideas around death and eternity that have been been taught and that have been widespread. He doesn't he doesn't mention soul sleeping here in, in, in this, which is which some people have taught throughout the, throughout the ages, where the body and the spirit are asleep essentially until the resurrection of the dead at the second coming of Jesus. So basically, like people some people teach that you just go into the in, in, into the into the ground. And you'll just, you'll just sleep there, essentially. It's a soul sleeping so, until Jesus returns. And then when he returns and he gathers up the saints who have died, then you'll be in eternity with him in the, in the new heaven and the new earth. Jesus also doesn't mention purgatory here of any kind, which many have taught, which is an in-between place that you go until you can basically pay off your debts. And so Paul talks about this. Paul also gives us confidence in in, uh, 2 Corinthians 5. He says, therefore, we are always confident and know that as long as we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, right? Physically, we are away from the Lord when we are at home in the body. He says, "We, we live by faith, not by sight. We are confident, I say, and would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So we make it our goal to please him whether we are at home in the body or away from it. So Paul teaches this. Jesus is saying this at the cross, that immediately after we die, we get to be with Jesus. And it's like, it's like coming home. It's like coming home. And it's far better than any good thing we could experience in this life. And so what's happening here in Luke 23 is that Jesus is looking at this criminal. And he is promising this criminal his forever presence. He is saying, like, today you'll be with me in paradise. Like, there will not be a moment where I am not with you from this moment on. Jesus is promising to never leave him as he promises us to never leave us nor forsake us. And as we are promised in the New Testament, you know, that, that, that nothing can separate us from the love of God. Like, like, this is the promise to the criminal. Like, nothing is going to separate you from my love. I'm going to be with you now, and I'm going to be with you as you draw your last breath and as you go into this next life. And so I just tell you that because this criminal has this, these, these, these questions of, like, what's going to happen to me after I die? Questions we all have. And I want to tell you that we don't have to be fearful of going into death. Like it's this empty void and we're just so unsure. Like we're meant as Christians to live with a different view of death. That it's, that it's not the end. That it's not final. That we pass from this life into the next. In fact, I want you to look at this, this thought with me on the screen. Jesus walks with us through this life and into the next. That's what he's saying to the criminal on the cross. He's saying, I'm with you now, I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm, I'm with you now in this moment, but I'm going to be with you in, in, in the next life as well. Jesus says today, you're going to be with me in paradise. Paradise is another word that sticks out to me, and I just assume that's heaven or wherever God is, right? Paradise is a word that come, it comes from, 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 a, uh, from a Persian word, when the Jewish people left their exile in in, in the Persian Empire and they returned to Jerusalem, they they took this word with them when they came out of slavery. And when they, and it means this, it means an enclosed garden or park of a king. An enclosed garden or a park of a king or park for a king. And so when they translated this, this Persian word, when they got back out of slavery, they translated this word, um, like, 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 into Hebrew and eventually into Greek, right? So, we talked last week just briefly about the Septuagint, which was basically the Old Testament, which was originally written in Hebrew, but, but the Septuagint is the Old Testament translated into the Greek language. And so, they, they took this word paradise, and when they translated it into their common language, it translated as the Garden of Eden. Translated as the Garden of Eden, the place where Adam and Eve were kicked out of because of sin, the place where God walked with Adam in the cool of the day. And so in this, in this story, in this, in this deal, like, like Jesus is looking at this, this thief on the cross, and he says, t- says to him, You're gonna, you know, when you, when, you, when you draw your last breath here in a moment, today you'll be with me in Eden, in Eden. Now in the Old Testament, it is often that there are things that are spoken about, earthly things, that are intended to mirror heaven. So you think of like the tabernacle in the Old Testament where Moses is given the exact, the exact instructions of how to build the tabernacle. It's, it's the exact instructions meant to mirror the tabernacle in heaven. There's as oftentimes there are things going on in the Old Testament that, that are meant to be a picture here on earth that are, that are a mirror of what is going on in heaven and that is exactly what's going on here with, with Eden. It's the same thing, paradise. Jesus is speaking about it is Eden. Eden is the earthly mirror. The Garden of Eden in Genesis, it's the earthly mirror of a heavenly paradise. And Jesus says to this criminal, you're gonna be with me there in this heavenly paradise. What I think what he's saying, what I I read, what what I get out of this, is Jesus is looking at this criminal and he's telling him, hey, I can get you back into Eden. I can get you back into Eden. Like, if you remember, Adam and Eve are kicked out of Eden, right? They're not allowed to be back in there. It's actually like like the mercy of God that they are kicked out of Eden. Like we 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 kind of get confused on that. But if, had they stayed in Eden, they would have just continued to eat from the tree of life, and then, and they would have been like 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 they would have been eternally separated from God because of their sin. So it's actually the mercy of God that He kicks them out of Eden, and then He then He 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 places uh, an angel uh there to to guard the entrance so they can't get back not only does he do that but he hides it from their view so like even if they could find their way back now they can't get in because there's an angel who's, who's standing there at the entrance so th- this is these are jewish men being crucified on the cross next to jesus criminals they understand their heritage they understand like where they come from they understand that, that, that there was a time when man it was normal for man to walk with god in the cool of the day and, and now it's no longer that way they understand all of this, and Jesus is saying like paradise, paradise is Eden, I, I can get you back there. Where, where you and your ancestors and your people have been kicked out of and removed from, like I can get you back into that place. Adam Hamilton, he's a, he's a theologian, says, he says this, he says, John's gospel tells us that Jesus prayed in the garden of Gethsemane, was crucified in a garden at Calvary, and was buried in a garden next to Calvary, John tells us that when Jesus was raised from the dead, Mary Magdalene sees him and thought he was a gardener. This is like important stuff. This is important. What I believe John was saying, what I believe Luke is hinting at in these words of Jesus spoken to a dying criminal is that Jesus was opening the door to the king's garden once more. Through his suffering, death, and resurrection, Jesus was removing the curse that had banished humankind from the garden, from paradise. And he was was inviting us to return to paradise with him. And the first person he invited to join him in paradise was a hardened criminal, a thief on the cross. A thief on the cross. Jesus, Jesus speaks to this man and he says, today you're gonna be with me in this heavenly Eden, this heavenly paradise. Always interesting to me in this story is that Jesus says these famous last words to someone who is regarded as the lowest of the low in human society. Jesus has the audacity to look at this criminal, this bad man, and say, today you're gonna be with me. Today, in paradise. We see somebody in this story who is a capital offender, someone who, who he even says, we deserve this punishment. We've been justly judged. He deserves to be where he's at, and yet Jesus speaks these kinds of words to him? Look at this thought with me. On the cross, God shatters the entire system of just rewards and just punishment. In other words, the cross, it shatters the system of you get what you deserve, and it institutes an entirely new system of you don't get what you deserve. Jesus gets what you deserve. And through the cross, the people who are regarded as out are now somehow regarded as in. And all the, all the man ever, ever did, all he ever could do was just say, Jesus, remember me. And this man was a criminal. He has no chance to make things right with his family. He has no chance to return the possessions that he has stolen. He has no chance to make amends for anything he has done. And Jesus says to him, today you'll be with me in paradise. Now if it was up to us we'd probably want the guy to go through a Bible study. it was up to us, we'd probably want him to attend church for a while, just to prove it, show that you really mean what you just said, to show that he was serious. But Jesus doesn't say anything like that, he says, today you'll be with me in paradise. A lot of people have a hard time with these famous last words of Jesus. In fact, these are the words that, that most people struggle with the most of Jesus at the cross. Some people think like this, they say something like, you mean to tell me that I've been a Christian most of my life and I've said no to things that I've wanted to say yes to. And I've lived a moral, ethical life. But this thief on the cross who's made bad decisions and didn't follow God, at the end is going to be allowed into, into the place where I'm going to be? Like, how fair is that? Like, like I had to live this way, but he doesn't have to live that way? How fair is that? Like like these words from Jesus on the cross to this thief, it offends most of us. The cross offends our human sensibilities of just rewards and just punishment. The grace of God offends. Because all Jesus needed to hear from the man was from the bottom of his heart, remember me. Jesus said today, today you'll be with me. Jesus speaks about paradise here, he is speaking about a place. More importantly, he's speaking about a relationship that this man has now entered into. Like Eden, paradise is wherever and whenever you are connected to God. Just like Pastor Josh mentioned in communion, like Jesus came to save us, he to, you know, there is, there is a place we go, but there's salvation in the here and now salvation, if you're taking notes, is fundamentally about a person, not a place. The place is obviously important, but it's only what it is because of the person. So it's like you take God out of, out of Eden and it's no longer Eden, right? It's like that's, that's, that's no longer paradise without God in it. And so these famous last words are words of forgiveness to this criminal They are words of forgiveness that are not based on human performance, but based on the performance of God. Based on what God has done on the cross of Calvary. It is grace. It is grace. It is grace. It is unmerited favor. It is what you do not deserve. The first thief says, Save yourself and us. The second thief says, Remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus, what does he do? He responds with grace. He responds with grace. As I get ready to close, I have one last observation from this story. Luke 23, we have the Son of God crucified between two thieves, two criminals. But these famous last words aren't just about one thief, and they're not just about two thieves. It's really about three thieves. And you might think, Pastor Jordan, are you suggesting that there is a fourth cross on which there was another thief crucified, and that is certainly not what I mean, okay? What I am saying is that it is appropriate for Jesus to be crucified between these two thieves because Jesus himself was the third thief on the cross. You see, the cross is the greatest act of theft in all of human history. On the cross even though the powers and principalities could not perceive what was going on, although the Roman soldiers couldn't see it, and although the religious leaders could not believe what was happening, God was, in Christ, stealing from the powers of evil. He was stealing back what had been taken. Luke 11, Jesus says this, In the Gospel of Luke, he's speaking about demonic powers. Listen to his language here. In Luke 11, 21 and 22, he says these words. He says, When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own house, his possessions are safe. But when someone stronger, everybody say someone stronger. When someone stronger attacks and overpowers him, he takes away the armor in which the man trusted and divides up his spoils. And so this is the image that Jesus is using regarding Satan, in regards to who Satan is. Satan, in this example, is the strong man. He is the strong man who is holding things in possession, holding humanity in bondage, as it were. But Jesus says here in Luke 11 that when a stronger man comes, he binds him up, right? He plunders his possessions, And this is what Jesus does on the cross because Jesus is the stronger man. Jesus does this on the cross. He's the third thief. He binds up death. He binds up Satan. He binds up sin. He steals from the powers and principalities. Jesus robs all the powers that have a hold on our lives. He robs the shame that has kept us in bondage. He robs Satan's power over you. He robs death's power over you. He robs sin's power over you. And in his death, in his death, Jesus steals all that sin, Satan, and death had held captive. And it's what makes this story good. You see, at the cross, we have the most tragic and horrifying event we can imagine. Most of the vignettes or the pictures, the images we have of the crucifixion scene are of a contemplative Jesus, right? One who is, who is thinking about, you know, what is, you know, like, 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 like what is about to happen to me? We, we, we kind of get this picture of the serious Jesus. I know this is going to be a lot, but I'm... I'm going to do this no matter what. And we get these images, but, like, they really fall short of really helping us see what is really happening to Jesus in this, in this moment. In fact, there's, there's a Brazilian artist who famously created what's called the, the, the tortured Christ. And it, it, it's actually not pleasant to look at at all. And part of why I don't have it on the screen, you can look it up yourself. It's called the tortured Christ. And it's, it's like, horrific to look at. It doesn't doesn't bring up me any joy. Like, I'm not sitting there going, oh, that's so precious and cute. It's like, it's horrific. And then the cross of Jesus is the most tragic and horrifying event that we can imagine, and yet we see in the crucifixion of Jesus God working on our behalf to rescue us because in his death, in Jesus' death, God's, required judgment and justice is met. It's met. In the death of Jesus, God's grace is poured out. In his death, we are reconciled to God. We are brought back into Eden. We are brought back into this heavenly paradise where we can walk with God again in the cool of the day. In his death, we are forgiven of our sin. And and, and so, So what is the invitation for us today? What what, what does this require of us? Lord, Lord, remember me. Lord, would you remember me? These words are the heart of repentance. The cross, when we look at it, it should invoke these words in us. Lord, would you remember me? Lord, would you remember me? There's nothing I can do. There's nothing I can do to prove it. There's nothing I can do to earn it, Lord would you just in your goodness and in your grace, would you remember me? Would you remember me? I wanna turn to you now, would you remember me, Jesus? Would you remember me, Jesus? Last thought on the screen. It says when our hearts speak out, remember me in a form of repentance, God says today you will be with me. In paradise. But Lord, you don't know all that I've done. Yeah, he does. He says, today you'll be with me in paradise. But Lord, I've never done this. I've, I've never done that. I've never had, you know, had, had a way to, to kind of show you this or prove this. He says, that's all right. You're going to be with me today in, in, in paradise. All that he asks is that in repentance, we call out to him with the words, Lord, would you remember me? Would you remember me? Would you stand this morning? Would you just bow your heads for just a moment? We'll dismiss in a second here. Would you just bow your heads and just kind of maintain a moment of reverence before the Lord? Because I believe that God is speaking to people here today under the sound of my voice. I believe he is speaking to your heart. I believe that there are people in this room right now who just know that it is time to say, Lord, remember me. And we struggle with this. We struggle with the cross because so many times we think that we just fully get it. Like we fully understand the cross. Like we've heard the story a million times and we get it. Like Jesus died for our sins. And, 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 and we forget that really the, the idea behind salvation is not just that we are saved. It's that we are being saved and that we will be saved. That there is a continuation of this process of salvation. That I still need God's salvation today and I need it tomorrow. Like I, I need his blood poured out over my life today and tomorrow and in the future. I need to be continually just, just, just saved by God. And it's not that I've lost my salvation. It's not that like my, my confession and repentance in that one moment wasn't good enough. It's that I'm a flawed man and I need God to continue to, to root out evil and root out sin to form me into the man that he wants me to be. And so if that's you today, it's not just that you need salvation, but you need God to continue to save you. You need God to continue to root out the things that need to go. And today you would just cry out to Jesus and you would say, Lord, remember me. Could I see your hand in this room? If that's you right now, Lord, would you just remember me? Would you remember me in this place? Right now? Lots of, lots of hands, you're, you're in good company here today. There's, there's many hands in this place. I've got two of them up. Lord, remember me. If you're here today and you've never really surrendered your life to Jesus or you have not been walking with him for a long time, you've been walking your own path, you've been doing your own thing, and you know you're under conviction of the Holy Spirit right now. You know that God is calling you You know that God is is, is trying to save you. He's trying to bring you into right relationship with God. You know that God, that he is speaking to you saying, I can get you back to Eden if you'll let me. And today you you wanna just say, Lord, remember me. Could I see your hand? You wanna say, God, it's time. I wanna surrender my life. It's time to surrender it all over again right now. Father, in the name of Jesus, we come before you. I ask God that you would just do the impossible. You do the things we can't do. We can't save ourselves, we're not good enough, we're not strong enough, we're not not equipped to do this. So we come humbly, surrendered before the God of the universe. The God who came in flesh, who lived and dwelled among us, who lived a life like we live, who lived sinless and went to the cross, and on that cross took on the sin, of the world, which includes my very own. We thank you that you are this kind of God who loves us at this level. And I pray now, God, in Jesus' name, you would begin to speak over your kids like you spoke over Jesus at his baptism. Behold, this is my son. Behold, this is my daughter whom I love and in whom I am well pleased. Lord, I pray that these words would start to just penetrate our heart that we'd experience and know in radical ways today the love of the Father that cannot be stopped, that cannot be limited by our sin, that cannot be limited by bad decision after bad decision. And so God, right now I pray for just a resurrection to take place in people's lives where there has been death, where there has been decay, where there has been... Life being stolen from them now, God. I pray fresh life and health and wholeness in Jesus' name into this room, oh God. Come and do the things you're famous for. Come and pull people today, God, out of the struggle, out of the sin, out of the junk. Come and pull people today, God, out of of the muck and out of the mire. Come and do it. And so if you're here today and you said those words, you said, Lord, remember me. You see, here's the deal. It doesn't have to be a fancy prayer. There's not a fancy prayer you have to pray. You just have to say, Lord, remember me. And if you're saying that today from the bottom of your heart, you have been brought into the family of God. You've been reconciled with God. Jesus has given you access to Eden again. And so if that's you, welcome. Welcome into the family of God. And if you're here today and you're just kinda needing further reinforcement that the love of God is real and that it's powerful and that there's nothing you've ever done that could limit it, I want you to hear these words and I want you to sing these words and if you already believe it, I want you to, to, to prophetically sing these words. I want you to prophetically sing these words that, that there are people in this room who may not fully believe these words and you're, you're, you're prophesying as you sing, sing these lyrics that there are those in this room who don't believe it who will. And you're also prophesying into your future because there are times in your future when you're gonna struggle to, begin to believe these words, where you're gonna struggle to believe that Jesus really does love you because of things you've done. And so you're not just, you're not just like singing these words because you believe them now, you're prophesying into your future that he loves me, he's gonna continue to love me, he will love me at my best, and he will love me at my worst. Would you just sing the, about, about the love of Jesus here today and in this room?